Hall, Glens Falls. It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Thursday, February 1st. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. New York could close up to five state prisons this year. The head of the State Department of Corrections says a big reason is the lack of staff. We have 3,800 vacancies in the system, of which 1,900 are correction officers. Democrats in the state Senate approved a plan to work directly with drug manufacturers to make cheaper generic versions of key drugs like insulin. Accessible And affordable prescription medication is not a luxury. We know that. We know it is a necessity. Also, an elementary school in Watertown recently unveiled a second vending machine that dispenses books. The goal? Inspire a love of reading. And we'll meet a couple in Cranberry Lake who make wooden duck decoys. These are duck heads. And these are, uh, they need a little more sanding around the neck and and under the bill. There's... uh, Bodies around somewhere in another box. All of that's coming up on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcaster Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Gray and Gray and Associates, CPAs, an accounting and financial services firm in northern New York with offices in Canton, Potsdam, and Spring Hill, Florida. GrayCPAS.com. And by AdirondackExplorer.com and AdirondackAlmanac.com, presenting daily updated news on public policy, environmental issues, and local communities in the Adirondack Park. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. New York could close up to five prisons around the state this year, including here in the North Country. Prison closures have been a key priority for the state over the last decade as the inmate population has declined. But this time around, officials say the proposed closures are more due to staffing shortages, as Emily Russell explains. In the late 1990s, more than 22,000 New Yorkers worked inside prisons around the state. Today, those staffing levels are down to around 15,000. Right now, we are in a critical staffing crisis. That's Daniel Marticello. He's head of the state's Department of Corrections and Community Supervision. He testified in front of state lawmakers last week. A lot of what he talked about was the governor's proposal to close up to five state prisons this year. He fielded questions from people like Assemblyman Eric Dillon from Brooklyn about why the state thinks that's necessary. Marticello said a big part of it had to do with the lack of staff. We have 3,800 vacancies in the system, of which 1,900 are correction officers. So the main impetus for the closure of up to five are are for staffing reasons? That that is the main impetus, but... Additionally, we've seen a 55% reduction in the incarcerated population since our high. That high was back in 1999, when about 73,000 people were behind bars in New York. Today, the prison population is down by more than half to about 33,000. That's due to a few key things, including criminal justice reforms, dropping crime rates, and repealed drug laws. 
There are nine state prisons around the North Country. Those facilities currently employ about 4,800 people. Marticello said last week that if the state does close more prisons this year, no one will be forced out of work. There's going to be no layoffs through this process. We'll work cooperatively with our employees, our unions. I have jobs within the system to absorb everyone. Marticello declined to offer any details about which prisons might face closures this year. The state has closed three prisons around the North Country in recent years, including ones in Watertown, Ogdensburg, and Moriah. During that time, the region's prison population has dropped by 28%, while staffing levels are down by 22%. Emily Russell, North Country Public Radio. Governor Kathy Hochul has nominated a new superintendent of the state police. Stephen James served as a trooper for 32 years and was the deputy superintendent of Troop G, which covers the capital region. He spoke at an event alongside the governor yesterday and said he would hold the troopers to a high standard. You should all know I truly believe in the state police, but we have much work to do. To the troopers, I commit being a supportive force for the rank, for the men and women of the state police. Know that I will hold us all accountable for our actions, all of us. Governor Kathy Hochul touted her administration's work to improve public safety and support law enforcement, including the state troopers. And I'll tell you, I'll always make sure you have the resources you need. That is my commitment. Acting Superintendent, I will commit that. You tell us what you need. You tell us what you need to be successful. Those who say defund the police, please, I say fund them to the extent that they need to do their jobs and will be a safer and a grateful society as a result. Stephen James will serve in an acting role as his nomination goes to the state Senate for confirmation. The previous superintendent of the state troopers, Kevin Bruin, resigned in 2022 amid a misconduct investigation. Fort Drum soldiers will deploy to missions in the Middle East, Central Asia, and Europe this spring. According to a press release yesterday, the 10th Mount Division Command Aviation Brigade will leave the U.S. military, leave for the U.S. Military Central Command. It stretches from Egypt to Afghanistan and Pakistan. The deployment is part of a regular rotation of forces to replace troops from the 82nd Airborne Division. Major General Greg Anderson, Fort Drum's commander, said in a statement the brigade, quote, has deliberately prepared for this mission for several months, unquote. Several units from Fort Drum's 1st Cavalry Division and 1st and 3rd Brigade combat teams will rotate into Europe this spring to support the U.S. commitment to NATO's allies and partners. The 10th Mount Division, based near Watertown at Fort Drum, is among the most deployed divisions in the U.S. military since the 1990s, with dozens of high-profile missions to Afghanistan, Iraq, Kosovo, Somalia, and Kuwait. Democrats in the New York State Senate this week approved a measure to allow the state to work directly with manufacturers to make generic and much cheaper versions of key drugs, including insulin. Karen DeWitt reports. The bill would make New York only the second state in the nation after California to seek contracts with drug companies to make its own generic prescription drugs, including insulin, a drug that has sharply risen in price in recent years. Senate leader Andrea Stork-Cousins says the aim is to lower the high costs of the medications and protect against potential drug shortages. Accessible and affordable prescription medication is not a luxury. We know that. We know it is a necessity. 
The legislation would also direct the state health department to identify other generic drugs that are costly or are vulnerable to shortages that could also be in a manufacturing partnership. Senate sponsor and health committee chair Gustavo Rivera says once the original investment is made, the changes would save the state's multi-billion dollar Medicaid program money. What this bill would do is would authorize the state to partner with private companies to actually produce generic drugs. A second bill would eliminate insurance co-payments for insulin, which is used by 1.6 million New Yorkers to control their diabetes. Governor Kathy Hochul also included that provision in her state budget proposal this year. The Democrats' proposal comes at a time when the governor is asking lawmakers to slash $1.5 billion in public health care spending. Rivera is against the cut, saying it's not the time to reduce spending to a health care system already destabilized by the pandemic. I certainly scratch my head because I think that there are other options on the table. I think that there, that, uh, there, are, there is, as you said, there's uh, proposed cuts for between a billion and a billion and a half. Um, I think that this is not the moment to do that. Rivera, along with the Healthcare Workers Union, SEIU 1199, and home care advocates, have an alternative proposal for cost savings in the state's Medicaid program. They want to decouple home health care from the Medicaid managed care program. They say that arrangement, begun in 2011, has resulted in billions of dollars going to insurance companies who manage the programs for administrative costs and profits instead of pay for the home care workers. Rivera, speaking at a recent rally, says it was a failed experiment. It has not worked. What has happened, and every single one of these folks behind me can tell you, what has happened is that we have a system in which people are more needy, in which people who take care of those folks who are needy don't get paid the money that they deserve. He says the change could save the Medicaid program $2.5 billion a year. That's more than the amount Hochul is seeking in savings. The health insurance industry opposes the idea. In a statement, the New York Health Plan Association, which represents nonprofit insurance plans, says the previous fee-for-service arrangement was a dismal failure and that there are concerns among home health care providers and their clients, who they say are worried about the impact the bill would have on elderly and disabled New Yorkers. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt for the New York Public News Network. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's 11 minutes past 8. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Just ahead, as a reward for good citizenship, youngsters in the Watertown School District are given a token for a vending machine that dispenses new books. We'll hear more about it coming up in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. Music by Rights and Tongue. 
Northern Light is supported by Cronin's Golf Resort, a regional destination for golf, dining, and lodging in the southern Adirondacks. Details at croninsgolfresort.com. And by Community Performance Series, presenting Sing and Swing Jazz at Lincoln Center. Presents production March 15th at 7.30 p.m. at SUNY Potsdam's Hosmer Hall. More at cpspotsdam.org. Border Patrol agents in Franklin County arrested a man wanted for murder in Canada earlier this month. According to U.S. Customs and Border Protection, agents found 29-year-old Luis Miguel Eusebio Severino in the woods near Westville on Friday, January 12th. He's a citizen of the Dominican Republic. CBP says he didn't have uh, says he didn't have any immigration documents or status that would have allowed him to be in the U.S. Eusebio Severino was wanted on a Canada-wide warrant. The Toronto Star reports that he's accused of shooting and killing a man in Toronto in December. Border Patrol agents turned him over to Canadian authorities. The former publisher of the Plattsburgh Press-Republican died by suicide last week. John Celestino was 63 years old. He served as the paper's publisher from 2019 to 2022. According to the Press-Republican, he most recently oversaw newspaper operations at that paper and two others in New York State. He was also the regional executive and group publisher for multiple newspapers in New England. Lamia Ali is the Press Republican's current publisher. She said Celestino, quote, lived and breathed newspaper, newspapers, and it was infectious to all of us, end quote. Celestino was a Philadelphia native. He was living in Niagara County at the time of his death. He's survived by two daughters. If you or someone you know is in crisis, you can call or text the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline anytime at 988. This weekend's ice fishing derby in Tupper Lake has been canceled due to unsafe ice conditions. The Northern Challenge takes place each year on the first Saturday in February. It draws hundreds of fishermen and women who compete for cash and prizes. Even though the derby is canceled, organizers will still give out prizes and sell merchandise. We have more information about that on our website, ncpr.org. Some people can't wait to retire, but some people find their thing, something they love so much they never want to stop. That's the case for one Adirondack craftsman. Anna Williams-Bergen has this North Country at Work story. This is generally my job, what I do. It's a cold, snowy day in Cranberry Lake. Linda Jones wears fuzzy pink shoes and a big puffy coat. She's shoveling a path from her house to the workshop. So, this is it. It is the headquarters of St. Lawrence River Decoys, where Linda and her husband Bob make wooden ducks. So there's different kinds. There's a canvas back, and this is a a bluebill. And I think this one might be, that one looks like a mallard. Jones is sorting through a bucket of wooden duck parts. They haven't been sanded down or painted yet. These are duck heads, and these are, uh, they need a little more sanding around the neck and and under the bill. Here's uh, bodies around somewhere in another box. 
Linda's husband, Bob Jones, cuts, sands, and hand paints decorative decoys. They sell them online, at craft shows, and out of a small showroom attached to the workshop. Bob is the one who makes the ducks, but he's the first to say that the whole operation is a team effort. My wife, Linda Jones, is... uh She's behind the business. She's why I'm successful. She has done everything to help me. Jones started making these ducks way back in the 1950s. He was a kid growing up in southern New Jersey, and he and his friends wanted to go duck hunting. Uh, We couldn't afford to buy decoys, and my friend's father was one of the best carvers in the country, and he showed us how to make decoys at the time, and that's how I got started. It just worked, stayed right with me through life. Jones used to work on railroads all night and make decoys during the day. But in the early 1980s, he switched to decoys full-time. Nowadays, pretty much everyone uses plastic decoys for actually hunting. But the wooden versions still make great decorations. Jones also makes loons, swans, and the occasional heron. His methods are a bit more advanced than when he was a kid. Well, my equipment is from 1913 up till around 1970. A lot of old equipment that's that you can't replace today, but it'll last 100 years if you take care of it. That includes three different types of sanders and a system of tubes that suck all the sawdust from machines straight into big bags. Linda, you uh, turn on the sawdust system, please. Oh, it's get real noisy. The day I visited, Jones was working on a new product lamp stands with miniature ducks perched on the bottom. He cuts heads and bodies out of aged wood. Those parts get sanded, often a couple times with different sanders. The first is a rotating belt sander. Watch that's going to spin, so don't get too close to it. Then this is sanded. That's basically, that's a piece of rough sandpaper in there right now, so. Finished heads and necks get glued together. There, that's. This is a glue press. And you take several pieces, blocks of wood, glue them up, and then put them in here and crank these paddles down tight on there. It seals the two pieces together. The glue press looks a little medieval. It's made of heavy iron and probably weighs a thousand pounds. At over 100 years old, it's also the oldest piece of equipment in the shop, and it has a great origin story. We found it in a wall down in Pennsylvania. A friend was retiring, and Bob said to him, do you have a glue press? And he goes, I think there's one in the wall. We went over, he punched a hole in the wall, and there it was. His grandfather didn't want to move it, so he built a wall around it. After years of making ducks, Bob Jones is 83. He can't get out in a boat and do the duck hunting that first inspired him to make decoys. But Jones says painting them is as close as it gets. I hunted for years, and the last few years, I just like watching the birds fly. And my paint shop looks right on the river, and I can see all the ducks swimming by, and I like watching them now. Lots of people ask Bob Jones when he's going to retire. He says retirement is doing what you like to do, and he's been doing that all his life. For North Country Public Radio's North Country at Work project, I'm Anna Williams-Bergen in Cranberry Lake. North Country at Work is a long-running project of NCPR that collects photos and stories about working life in our region. If you have a work story you'd like to share, email us work at ncpr.org. Funding for the project is provided in part by the New York State Department of Education.
Listening to Northern Light right here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. In just a minute, insert a token and get a new book at a vending machine for youngsters in Water in the Watertown School District. That's coming up in just a couple of minutes. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note, building a nest box for bluebirds. We'll find out more just ahead at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Yeah, kind of a gray day today and tomorrow, but we might see some sun on Saturday and Sunday into the early part of next week. Uh, wintry mix, according to the Weather Service, today and tonight. That means some freezing rain, some fog, some drizzle at times, some snow showers this evening, and then isolated snow showers throughout tomorrow. Partial clearing uh, by Saturday and Sunday. The Weather Service is partly sunny Saturday with highs low 30s. Uh, today, again, highs in the mid to upper 30s and tomorrow as well. And then uh, a little uh, clearer on Saturday and Sunday with partly sunny skies. Right now, clouds 33 degrees in Canton. The Watertown School District has unveiled another book vending machine at an elementary school. Youngsters at North Elementary are rewarded for being responsible and respectful with a golden token to be used to get a new book. I spoke with North Elementary Principal Sandra Kane and School Counselor Gail Bassett about the new machine that's been very popular since it was unveiled last week. Bassett says it's actually the second book vending machine in water, in the Watertown District, and there are plans to expand it to every elementary school in the district. We have five elementaries in our district total, uh, meaning K through four, and I know that a couple of the others are also interested, so we're hoping that this will spread. And the district's been supporting getting these, so it hasn't been just a singular you know, building initiative. So that's nice. The district's really supporting the buildings having this. My name is Sandra Kane. I'm the principal at North Elementary. Our district does PBIS, which stands for Positive Behavioral Intervention Supports. What that is is we try to have basically fun and interesting things that the students are able to work towards as rewards for just doing their job, being respectful and responsible and all those things. So to incorporate the book vending machine as part of our PBIS awards was uh, another great way to just make things more fun for our students and make it inviting. We have uh, picture books for children that are around K and 1 in some second grade, and we also have some chapter books for our older readers in there. So they get a wide variety to choose from. And it's a vending machine, but it's not something that kids are going to walk up and put quarters into. They earn the privilege? Correct. The system that we've set up, and every, every building is always going to do this differently, but we, in our classrooms, give out something called the Star Student of the Week once a week. And the teachers choose that child, and they, they choose that based on a lot of different things. It's not just an academic reward. I want to be clear on that. Sometimes it might be the student who was most improved that week or a student who showed a lot of kindness to their peers and things like that. So the teachers always choose a star student of the week once a week. That has been announced in our announcements for quite some time now, once a week. 
And there were some small prizes affiliated with that. So what we did is we hooked our book vending machine to those winners. So every child, so this is one student per classroom every week, they will be announced as the Star Student of the Week winner. They come down, they're given a golden token that came with the book vending machine. That golden token gets used right then and there, and the kids choose a book with some adult supervision, and then back to class they go. So we're going to be giving out a book from the vending machine to one student per class every week. And we have some other book giveaway initiatives, but uh, this will be one that gives out really the most books at one time. This has to be just such a cool project. I mean, what? how have the youngsters responded and a lot of smiling faces and that kind of thing? Oh, definitely. It's been fun because Mrs. Kane actually asked one of our staff, um, that is not me, a reading teacher, to be the person to meet the kids down there, give out the coins. She was thrilled. She's loving it. It's just so fun to be able to give kids something positive and positive feedback and to see them happy. And the kids are loving it. What's more exciting than getting your own little token to put in a machine and get something out? Again, the kids here at North are pretty used to getting books as um, a reward. Uh, And so that's something that they really, truly love. Oh, and also when the kids put the coin in, it talks to them a little bit. There's a few things that the book machine says to the kids as it's giving them the book. And, of course, they love that. So the whole, And it's got pretty lights and all of the things that, you know, you would want to make it attractive to little people. So it is a great vending machine, and that's a good company to work with. Something like, you know, great choice or, or well done. Or something. <laughs> comes your book now. I can't remember what it says, but something along those lines is super yeah. cute. Yeah, their eyes are huge when that's happening, so it's cute. Do you both kind of see this as a way of inspiring uh, not just a love for reading, but just maybe um, good citizenship, those sorts of things? Absolutely. I think the more chances that our students can have to have fun things that they earn just for being the good little people that they are. We have a lot of great kids that just, you know, sometimes we, it's just nice to get a pat on the back or a good job for being an awesome person. So I love it that they will be able to to have this experience. Yeah. And it's something that we can hit our whole range of students with in terms of positive feedback, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes, honestly, in education, anyone will tell you, kids with more struggles, it seems like they get more focus and attention. You know, as kids get older, I used to be at the high school level, and it seemed like the kids who excelled more got more attention, and, and that's not what we want to be about here. So we want to be sure that we are giving all of our kids an opportunity to get that positive feedback, to earn rewards. I mean, we have a couple other book initiatives I'll just throw in quickly. Our library has created something fun. They give out a golden ticket just periodically. Every teacher has a golden ticket to give a child. And this is, they play the, the um, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory song over the announcements. Kids know it's golden ticket time. Teachers just hand out the golden ticket, and those children go down and pick a book in the library. Um, we also have, through this PBIS system, we have weekly what we call star cards. So those are in incentives that teachers fill out for kids. If they do their job, if they meet the expectations, they may be given a star card. They put them in these little mailboxes we have, and then only one student per grade is drawn weekly for that. And I do include a book as part of what they get. But I just think it's important to point out that this is awesome and fun, but we've already been doing certainly different ways to get books into kids' hands. North Elementary School Counselor Gail Bassett in Watertown. We also heard from Principal Sandra Kane about their school's new book vending machine. Watertown's Ohio Street Elementary School installed the first such machine in the district, and there are plans for more.
music by Paul Myers, the guitarist in Colton. It's 828. Reminder that the Messina Artists Association, they have a call for their annual open show every year. They invite students in grades 9 to 12 and adult artists to create and share art pieces at the open art show at the Messina Library. You can deliver the art to the library on February 14th from 1 to 4 and the 16th from 1 to 4. And then the morning of the 17th, there'll be a reception for that open art show at the Messina Library on March 2nd from 11 to 1. And the Paulsmith College Vic is continuing their Ski with a Scientist program. Coming up in a couple of weeks, uh, you can ski with Celia Evans, participants ski with experts to talk about topics that revolve around how to create a sustainable future. Scientists will stop along the stunning winter landscape at the Vic and present their research. Uh, it's free, but a trail pass is required. You can find out more from paulsmiths.edu slash Vic. That's coming up on Saturday, February 17th. That's it for the show for the day. I'm Monica Sandreski. I'm Todd Miller. Thank you so much for listening. Be well.